It's uh, Thursday evening in a matter of hours, not days, but just hours. Jesus will be betrayed, arrested, tried, and crucified. The setting is in the upper room where he will continue to give extended final instructions to his disciples and where they are eating together. Uh, Interesting how uh, John introduces this account. He says that he loved them to the very end. Or another translation has it that he showed them the full extent of his love. And uh, what we see here in him uh, washing the feet uh, represents very well the whole pattern of how his love is being worked out. The Lord of heaven descended so fully, taking on human nature, uh, but then among humans being a servant, and in this way modeling the way of the kingdom. Sometime during the evening meal, Jesus gets up, he removes his outer clothing, wraps a towel around his waist, and begins to wash his disciples' feet. Now this was a task that was normally given to a slave or a servant. But it was a not only a menial task, but it was very necessary. Uh, Earl Rodmacher, who was president of the school I attended in Portland, Oregon, writes about this, and he shows the importance of foot washing, uh, saying that people uh, walked barefoot, either barefoot or with open sandals. The streets were dirty because of the donkeys and whatever. And uh, not only that, but when they ate together, they didn't sit up at a table the way we do with our feet on the floor, but they reclined in a way wherein one person's feet was quite close to another person's face. And so uh, Rodmacher says, I think you get the drift. Foot washing was pretty important. But imagine the stunned silence in the room as Jesus, their leader, washes their feet, one disciple after the other. No one says anything until he comes to Peter. And knowing what we know about Peter, through the rest of the New Testament, he's of course going to say something. And uh, we see that in verse 6 and 7. And he, and he uh, says he comes to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And then uh, the next verse, you'll never wash my feet. Um, but you know, wasn't, wasn't, wasn't Peter's reaction what everyone else was thinking? You know? There was something wrong with this. There's something wrong with this picture. This just isn't right. 
Because in the world of Jesus' setting, servants might wash the feet of their master as he returns from a journey. A wife might even wash her husband's feet. How about it fathers on Father's Day? Any volunteers? <laughs> a wife might wash her husband's feet or students the feet of their teacher, but never the other way around. And so Peter protests and he says, you know, you're never going to wash my feet. But Jesus explains, he says, Peter, if you're going to be connected with me, I have to wash your feet. If I don't wash your feet, you don't have a part with me. You're not connected to me. And when Peter hears the, the explanation, he reverses his position and he says, then Lord, wash all of me. You know, wash my head, wash my body. And then our Lord explains further and he says that the person who comes to a feast has already had a bath and when he arrives he only needs to have his feet washed and then he applies this to the situation of his disciples and he's saying you know you're already clean you're clean and then except except the one and uh and I think uh, a couple of pages over, we have an explanation for that because in 15, verse 3, Jesus says that you are already clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Okay? They had heard his word. They had responded to his word. They were committed to following him. Jesus says you're already clean. But this is about something else. This is about something that follows. You are clean, but at this point, he is modeling. The master is modeling this for them. And then he goes on to teach that they too must wash one another's feet. Well, that brings us to the question that we need to be asking this morning. What does all of this mean? What does it mean? And of course it means so much. And I don't suppose that there is any particular New Testament truth that can't be somehow tied to this. It is so full, so complete. But looking at, I think, what it's mainly about and keeping it simple and keeping it clear, what really does stand out, and it's been said already this morning, that we who are Christ followers are called to be servants to one another. That stands out here. We who are Christ followers are called to be servants, the one to the other. And so how? How does this take place? In what way? And I want to point out three things here that come out of the text regarding this modeling that Jesus is doing here and uh, the first point is simply this, that Jesus served as the example. Verse 14, Now that I, your Lord, have, and have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. Verse 16, or 15, I have set you an example. An example that you should do as I have done for you. Now that's pretty clear. And uh, I suggest that this is so intriguing 
And it's such a dramatic event in Jesus' life that we can be so taken up with that that I think we miss what it's mainly about here. He is our example in this. I am your example. Not to miss that. He is the model. He is the prototype for all of his followers. Now, I'm sure you're aware that uh, some churches have made foot washing into a regular practice. It's like an ordinance or a ritual. And uh, I've, never be- I've never been part of that. I wonder how many of you have been part of a foot washing service at a... Okay, it's obviously not common, but I'm sure you've all heard about it. And I'm sure it's very meaningful when people do that. It's very humbling, and it's supposed to be. I don't believe that that is what Jesus means, that you have to do it as an ongoing ritual, but rather that this is a call that we have to serve one another in helpful ways, in humility, and that it's supposed to be a way of life. It's the way we, it's, it's to be our posture, our attitude, our leaning, where we are alert to serving the other fellow believer. And then Jesus strengthens the call here to serve one another by making a reference to who he is. 13, you call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. And then he's saying that, you know, uh, I'm the Lord, I'm the teacher, I'm the master, and if I really am your teacher and master, then, then you, you need to follow my example. In fact, he is their Lord. In fact, at the very top, in verse 3, it says that. It says that he knew that all things were under his power. He's got everything. Uh, Some translations have, he knew that the Father had put all things into his hands. He's at the very top. What would you do if you were given that kind of power? Now, this stage in your life. If you had all power in the universe, be a CEO of a major company maybe, use it to amass a fortune for yourself, or how about doing some really good in this world, bring about world peace, eliminate world hunger, or becoming an effective soul winner, growing a great church. Interesting thing to dream about. What would you do? Well, here we have Jesus. All things are under his power. And what does he do? He picks up a towel and in humility serves his disciples one by one. And then he drives the point even further, and it's what I call a much more kind of argument. He says, uh, you know, uh, if I am doing this, and I'm, I'm at the top, and he doesn't pretend otherwise, how much more shouldn't you be doing it? And it's almost like saying that if I in love bend down in order to do this for people, how much more shouldn't you? Because it's like <laughs> you don't have to bend down quite so far. But think of the implication that follows. If you don't do it, if you won't do it, because you are above it, 
then you are in effect claiming to be greater than me. That's the implication. But here's the thing about Jesus, the bending down so low out of love is part of the whole pattern of the incarnation. When you think about it, God's Son coming down to earth as a baby, learning obedience, going all the way to the cross, dying, coming down so low out of love for us. But then, not only that, as he lives among us, picking up a towel, doing the task reserved for a slave. Jesus served as our example, but here's the second thing. He served in the lowliest of ways, the lowliest way. There was nothing that anyone could do in that culture that was considered lower. It was the menial task of tasks, one reserved for a slave. You'll remember that when Jesus encountered John the Baptist early in his ministry, early in Jesus' ministry. And John is eager to explain to the crowd that Jesus is incomparably greater than me. And how does he make his point? By referring to foot washing. He's looking for a way to show the width, the margin between him and Jesus. And he's looking for the way to, he's looking for a metaphor. And he chooses foot washing as the metaphor, because he says, I'm not even worthy to take off his sandal. And that is a reference to washing his feet. It was the lowliest of tasks. Philip Yancey tells us that in those days, foot washing was considered so degrading that a master could not require it of a Jewish slave. And yet... That is what Jesus chose to do for his disciples as our example. Now what is disturbing about that is a certain implication that follows for you and I if we are followers of Christ. And it is this, that there is no act of helpful it does need to be helpful, not just arbitrarily, not just doing it to feel good or because you're supposed to, but it's got to be helpful. Remember that. This was needed. That there's no act of helpful service for a brother or sister that is beneath my dignity. No matter who I am, no matter who the other person is, and no matter what the task is. Nothing is too low for that. And we would gladly wash the feet of Jesus, of course. And perhaps we would gladly wash the feet of those who are, we're already close friends with or loved ones or people that we really have high regard for. But others, those who cannot reciprocate, those who can't really give us camaraderie because we don't have much in common with them, we think, those who don't rate, serving whoever, but in a capacity that gives very little recognition. The famous conductor, Leonard Bernstein, was asked on a TV program, what is the most difficult instrument to play? And he responded, second fiddle. 
I can get plenty of first violinists, but to find one who plays second violin with as much enthusiasm, or second French horn, or second flute, now that's a problem. And yet, if no one plays second, we have no harmony. But you know, at least as important as doing it is doing it with a servant's heart. And how would you know? How would you know if your heart, if it's proper? And Lauren Sani of the Navigators was asked, how, how could you tell if you, really have, if you really are a servant? And his answer was, by how you act when you're treated like one. Yeah. I propose that one of the clues is whether you are serving the other person from a posture of above or long side. You know, I'm serving you, you know, or I'm coming alongside of you to serve you. We, uh, I think we're well aware and we hear a lot about it, not in those words necessarily, but, you know, in our society today there's a lot of emphasis on being colorblind in reference to ethnicity. ethnicity. But how about this? This text calls us, I believe, to be status blind. Okay? It's one thing to be colorblind. But how about status blind? And how can you be oblivious of status? And I suggest it's not so much about being blind or oblivious to it as it is attaching zero significance to it so that we could serve the prime minister or the premier or the queen in the same way that we serve the person that we need to help on the street or whoever. Uh, I grew up... uh, near Sexsmith, Alberta, on a farm, and hospitality was, you know, casual and frequent, and uh, my mom would, we'd often have people over, and mom would make sure that all the things that make for a good, wholesome, full meal were there. And, uh, and then people would usually ooh and awe a bit about that. Oh, you, sh- you, you, you know, you shouldn't have gone to so much trouble, and mom would say that, oh, you know, I didn't go to any trouble, but actually, even if the Queen of England came, I would, I would do it the very same way. No difference. Well, unfortunately, Mum never had a chance to prove that because the Queen of England never did call. But uh, I, think, I think she probably would have done it more or less the same. Status blind when it came to feeding. How can we be that way? How can we be unassuming, not paying attention, not caring about the prominence or the status or where this person rates, better yet to not even think about it. And I suggest a couple things that can help. The one is to realize that whatever, whatever I have to offer and whatever you have to offer, it's all of grace. God has given me certain things. He's given me certain abilities, gifts, and opportunities. It's His gift to me. And that's the basis of I can be where I am. Swindell tells about a fellow student uh, in seminary who uh, was forever pulling A's. It, it was just predictable. Pick up a paper in the mail slot that you had done, a return paper, mark paper, A. And uh, he had one approach. He always wrote beside it, Grace. 
grace. You know? I may have an IQ of 110, or I may have an IQ of 150, whatever. It's grace. And I may have been given opportunities. Oh, sure, we've availed ourselves of opportunities, but do we even dare to think in terms of to what extent is it because we have made good choices, because we made good choices, or because of God's grace in our life? It's all of grace. So why then do we make so much of respective statuses or where people are on the hierarchy in terms of living in this world, in this life. There's a second thing we can do, and that's, this is the practical one. The first one I mentioned is, is a thought, the way we think. It's of grace. But here's something you can do. We take a position. Philippians 2.3 says, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. I like the careful wording there. Paul isn't saying that the other person is more important than you. He's not saying that you rate lower than the other person. He's just saying, take that position. Reckon, count. Approach life with that particular posture. Reckon the other person to be more significant than yourself. And he says, do that in humility. You take a position. Count others. It's a stance. It's not that we're asked to believe a fiction, but it's an approach. It's a way of approaching brothers and sisters and all people, really. And that would be humility. I believe Gordon MacDonald has labeled this very well, that it is scriptural. And he says that Jesus' brand of servanthood means that everyone, child, leper, Gentile, opposite gender, sinner, is more important than me. It's a stance. It's a posture. It's a position we take. There's a well-known old poem by Ruth Harms Culkin, but uh, bears repeating... So on target, she writes, You know, Lord, how I serve you with great emotional fervor in the limelight. You know how eagerly I speak for you at the women's club. You know how I effervesce when I promote a fellowship group. You know my genuine enthusiasm at a Bible study. But how would I react, I wonder, if you pointed to a basin of water and asked me to wash the calloused feet of a bent and wrinkled old woman day after day, month after month. And here's the clincher. In a room where nobody saw and nobody knew. Jesus is our model. We are called to follow his example in serving. Secondly, it calls for the kind of uh, serving where nothing is below, the lowliest kind of a servant. Then finally, the call here is for mutual serving. You should also wash one another's feet. One another's. Uh, if we're going to be servant communities, it means that it's mutual. It's back and forth. Everyone is called to serve the other one. Of one another can only work when we're prepared to be on the giving end and the receiving end. 
It was hard for Peter initially to be on the receiving end. So he protested. I suggest we're quite prepared to receive from Jesus, but the call here is also to receive service from others. Can you do that in humility? I'm sure that many of us are more comfortable being serving than we are being served. It takes humility to let the other person serve you. And guess what, folks? This is about humility. That's what it's about. Don't be so independent and self-reliant that you don't need others. Jesus is all I need. Well, that's wrong. That's unbiblical. We need one another. And so let people give you their gift of serving you. Be willing to be served as well as to serve. And fathers, just absorb it today. Let them, let them treat you and really make you feel special, because you are. And of course, being helped, letting others help us, fits with the whole gospel arrangement. Receiving is love. That comes first, really. We receive, and it's as we receive that we're able to give. And so be prepared to let people serve you, but at the same time to serve others. Being a servant community, what a contrast with the way of the world. Because so often the way of the world, it's all about power and wealth and recognition and status. And this is the very opposite. As Tim Keller says, because Jesus was the king who became a servant. That's quite a statement. A king who became a servant. We see a reversal of values in his kingdom administration. In Jesus' kingdom, the poor, the sorrowful, and persecuted are above the rich, the recognized, and the satisfied. The first shall be last. The gospel then creates a new kind of servant community with people who live out an entirely alternate way of being human. Living in the world, rather than the world, it's you know, racial and class superiority, accrual of money and power at the expense of others, yearning for popularity and recognition. They're all marks of living in the world. We know, you know, I know that that's not absent in our communities. Part of growth is to, for that to become absent, at least in our individual lives and then perhaps in our, more and more in our corporate lives. Because those represent the opposite of the gospel mindset. I'm sure that many of us, many of us approach life, experience life feeling that we don't have much significance our experience from day one was a pattern of just being passed over, minimized, maybe taken for granted. But how encouraging that in his scheme of things, the marginalized especially are the ones who rate. I think we all know that so often serious problems in the church come from the kind of patterns that are patterns of the world. An obsession for power, the demand to be up there on the hierarchy, and all of that contrary to the servant posture that Jesus commanded here. 
Here, in the foot-washing account, we see played out descent, coming down. God coming down, down, down. Taking on human nature, and then as a man descending into the status of a servant, even as Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, he says, Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. And then, of course, preparing them here, the pattern being that's what he became, and then he provided that their sins could be forgiven, and then releasing them to live the kind of kingdom life that he's talking about here. And at the very core is living the life of a servant. Well, I suggest that it's really when we are living by these kingdom values of being servants that we have the greatest effect. There's a story that comes from the mission field some time ago now. It was, this happened in uh, India in 1967. Missionary Doug Nichols was a patient in a tuberculosis ward. Both patients and staff, they looked at him as a rich American taking up space in their hospital. Their hostility was evident as they refused the gospel tracts that he offered them. One morning at two o'clock, a very sick Indian man struggled to get out of bed to go to the bathroom, but he was too weak to make it. And soon the stench from his bed filled the room. Other patients yelled at him. Nurses showed their anger for having to clean up the mess. One of them even slapped him. The next night the old man tried again to get up, but again fell backward. He began to cry. And Doug, weak himself, went over, picked him up, carried him to the bathroom, and back to his bed. What a change! came over that hospital ward. One patient gave Doug a steaming cup of Indian tea, mentioning or motioning that he wanted a tract. Nurses, interns, and doctors asked for booklets or Gospels of John, and eventually several received Christ. Effectiveness, influence, when there is such a contrast between the ways of the world and the ways of the kingdom. And when this missionary, weak himself, was, a, was willing to take the posture of the lowest, the posture of a servant, effective. And so it is in our Christian world today. I was thinking as I was driving here this morning that, you know, we, um, we call our church's community, our son is involved in a, in a church uh, down in Langley, and it's called North Langley Community Church. What if we were to call our church North Langley Servant Community? What if we dared to call our church Ambleside Servant Community? Would that be presumptuous? Would it be more than we can even live up to? And yet... And yet, how biblical, being a community that 
looks for ways to serve. The true measure of greatness. Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be the slave of all. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, so he picked up a towel. Let's pray. And then we're going to sing as we prepare our hearts for communion. Father, you're calling us to something that is within the reach of every one of us. Whether we're wealthy, whether we're poor, whether we're multi-talented or just ordinary, whether we feel we're at the bottom of the hierarchy or we feel good about our place in society, you have called us to do something that is within our reach. And we pray that increasingly we might as individuals be known as those who serve and then as a community of believers become known as a community of servants. We pray that in all of this, you will honor yourself in us. In Jesus' name, amen.